The Incomplete Life of a Filmmaker, written and performed by Don Futterman. When you make a film, you begin with your storyboard. That's essentially a comic strip. You draw a series of panels, and in each box, you draw a picture representing another shot. When you draw your storyboard, you envision your entire film. At this stage, you decide if you want a tracking shot or a close-up, whether you're going to use a wide-angle or a telephoto lens. The great Japanese director Akira Kurosawa's storyboards were hand-painted artworks of great beauty. And they say that Alfred Hitchcock's storyboards were so detailed that any other director working from them would have made the exact same movie. The storyboard is when you make all of your decisions. That was the step I skipped. My first semester at Brown University. I sign up for the maximum number of courses allowed, which gives me about a thousand pages a week of reading. But the books filling my dorm room, they make me happy because they guarantee that I am going to be a scholar. I'm in my dorm room. I'm writing my first paper for college. My blue Luxo drafting lamp encases me in a bubble of light while my roommate, Anthony Scarna, is doing what he does every night, reading poems about death out loud. He's heavily into Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Now, I've had my assignment for 14 days, but I've only gotten as far as underlining what I think are the noteworthy passages in Thomas Mann's novel, Tonio Kroger. I'm supposed to be writing about Tonio Kroger's problem, but here's the thing. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to say, and I don't know what the right answer is. I'm just underlining sentences because they told me I have to bring evidence from the text, so I'm marking up the whole damn book. At 1 a.m., I copy these passages onto a sheet of loose-leaf paper, hoping that once I see them together and out of context, I will remember why I thought they were significant in the first place. What the hell is Tony O'Kroger's problem? He's not happy. Okay, so what? At 2 a.m., I move to the kitchen of the dormitory so Anthony can get some sleep, and I start worrying about my grade. My forte has always been to pull off the honors while affecting not to care how well I do. But the truth is I cannot tolerate anything below A-. minus. The likelihood I will get a good grade, any grade, seems remote. At 4 a.m., I imagine getting hit by a car on the way to class. Not a serious injury requiring long-term hospitalization, just a short reprieve for sympathy and forgiveness, a complete amnesty. You're such a good student, I don't need to see it in writing. By 5 a.m., I'm too tired to pace. I return to my room, I lay down on my bed, and I give up. This assignment cannot be done. And then magically, it happens. My mind clears. Tony O'Kroger's problem is that he wants to be both a passionate bohemian artist and a responsible bourgeois citizen, and it's tearing him apart. At 5 to 10, I finish typing my paper, Tonio Kroger's Problem, race through my quad and across the campus green to reach the lecture hall just before my class is dismissed. To complete this paper on time, I have pulled my very first all-nighter, a precedent I will never break. Two weeks to go in first semester, and I'm five papers behind. I wake up every afternoon, and I go up to the exalted viewpoint of the John D. Rockefeller Library just in time to see the sun setting down the hill over the city of Providence. So the library is a uh, a modernist expression of hugeness. It's a mass of stone and glass. There are low-ceiling floors one on top of the other, flattening soul and brain. 
I park myself in the book stacks, the collected wisdom of humankind, all labeled and crowded onto gunmetal shelves in long, narrow aisles. I attempt to focus on the books I need and ignore the thousands with more interesting titles all around me. I am conducting research, but I don't really understand the concept too clearly. No one tells me I'm supposed to define a research question and then try to answer it. And literature is even worse. I am reading the greatest fiction ever written, and I'm copying down page numbers and quotations into my spiral notebook. And this is what I'm wondering. Is college really about playing connect the dots with literary symbols? I spend a week on my essay for philosophy of education, inching through it one word at a time with Roger's thesaurus, so I have now expressed my precious thoughts in the most precise and synonymous language possible, and still my main argument, my thesis, doesn't flow into the rest of the paper. When I read the paper without my thesis statement, I discover that I've proven exactly the opposite of what I set out to prove, so... I insert the word not into my first sentence, and my paper is complete. Brown University shuts down for two weeks at the end of December before final exams. So I take my papers on the train and return home to Queens. For my anthropology assignment, I'm supposed to determine whether we show Indians who claim that everything in the world becomes its own opposite while they hunt for peyote, whether they should be seen as consistent and rationally irrational, spiritually elevated but intoxicated, or entirely insane. I can't concentrate at home because the low range of my grandmother's television resonates through the floorboards. On principle, I don't have a TV at school. And now my lifelong television addiction cries out for a fix, a big fix, a fix that will suck my brain back to a place of contentment. So I join my grandmother, and I convince her to watch my childhood favorite show, The Twilight Zone. And I'm comforted by the sight of Rod Serling wreathed in smoke, by his guitaral voice, by his confidence, by the supremely moral universe of mind-benders that he rules over. I've been pulling so many all-nighters that my body has flipped day for night. And I'm still awake every morning and have breakfast with my father before he goes to work. This is followed by note-taking, obsessive note-taking, until I pass out somewhere on the living room floor. And by the time I head back to school in January, falling asleep at a normal time has become an impossible dream. One week to go. Now, I'm still four papers behind, and I haven't even begun my work from my favorite professor, Richard Globus. Professor Globus is 57 years old, but he lives in a collective socialist house. Professor Globus is European. He has this endearing hitch in his speech pattern, which sounds superior, but not aristocratic. It's as if he comes from some wiser, neutral country like Switzerland. Professor Globus says, "'College is the time to confront the meaning of your life. This is your chance to define your real work.' to determine how you are going to make the world a better place. If you ignore these questions, you are wasting your parents' money, and more importantly, your opportunity to think. When I see Professor Globus riding across the green on his bicycle, or sitting under a tree talking in his neutral accent with some students, or eating an apple from a brown paper bag, I feel less alone at Brown. At our last class meeting, Professor Globus announces that anyone who needs to take an incomplete in our course, existentialism and urban alienation, should come to his office. An incomplete. 
and incomplete is an extension of time to complete an unfinished paper, which is not supposed to have any impact on your final grade. That's the answer. With an incomplete, I can pull an all-nighter on Sunday to finish History of Stalinist Russia and the Holocaust, take care of literature and self-consciousness on Tuesday night, and on Thursday night, I can do social action and radical reconstruction. Then, I can produce a quality existentialism and urban alienation paper at my leisure, without this ridiculous pressure. I prepare elaborate excuses, but when I see Professor Globus face-to-face, I just tell him the truth. You do not need to be burdened by yet another analytical paper. Your journal shows me that you have a special voice. I suggest you do a creative project instead. Uh, The fictional story, that would be the proper medium for you. I slog through my other papers inspired by the knowledge that soon I will be able to start in the proper medium on my new work of fiction, Sleepless in the City, the story of Henry Shulman. Henry Shulman had read The Existentialists. He knew that whatever you do shows the world how you think all people should be. What could Henry Shulman do with his life so that if everyone imitated him, the world would be a better place? The key was framing the right question, and Henry had obviously succeeded. I generate many notes and fragments, and I gather them into a brown, soft-leather writer's case. It's wide enough only for a few files, and its zipper shoots across the top with a clean, ripping sound. And now, whenever anyone sees me with my soft brown leather case, they know that I'm going to be a writer. But I can't seem to write this story. And I need to get an extension on my incomplete for Professor Globus. I need his signature, but I'm too embarrassed to run into him. So I, uh, I slink up Hope Street, and I sidle into the philosophy building. And just as I'm slipping the note into his mailbox, that's when I spot Professor Globus locking his office. I back into the first available doorway and I crash down a flight of stairs. The blood is clattering in my head. The walls are wet. My cheek is scraped. The only thing I can think of is what am I going to say if Professor Globus opens the door? Hello? Hi, I say in the unnaturally deep voice that comes out whenever I try to act unnaturally calm. He flicks on the light switch. Oh, it's you. Are you all right? A little lost. He asked me to carry up his bicycle, and while I am going up the stairs, I see him eyeing my writer's case. He wants to tell me how disappointed he is that I haven't finished my story about Henry Shulman, how I've let him down. He turns to me, but before I can speak, I ready myself to explain that I sit in the library for hours trying to write fiction, but a demonic power seizes my skull and forces me to stare out the window, that my body leaps out of the chair in a Pavlovian response to typing, that fiction is worse than essay writing because there's no roadmap, no structure, no argument, and how do I know if I'm going in the right direction or if I'm ever done, and that only he, Professor Globus, only he can free me from this joyless crusade. I want to tell him everything, but I don't know how you say these things out loud, and I'm not a quitter, and to hell with all these excuses. And while this battle is raging between my brain and my tongue, I know Professor Globus is going to give me hell in his neutral way for not finishing my work on time. And then he opens his mouth and he says, 
Thank you. He stares at me for a moment, waiting in vain for me to say, You're welcome, and then rides away. At the end of the semester, in order to have more time to work on my story about Henry Shulman, I take a second incomplete, which I keep in my old black school bag. Sophomore year, I arrive back at Brown complete with my incompletes. My roommate Anthony Skarna and I simultaneously experience a vicious case of sophomore slump. Anthony sits on his bed, bundled in his blankets, and studies the wall for six weeks. I spend my time in the basement of the John D. Rockefeller Library, parked at a different graduate student's carol every day. I bring my incompletes, but I never take them out of their bags. Instead, I flip through the obscure journals the doctoral students have gathered for their dissertations. In December, Anthony suddenly comes alive and does the entire semester's work in ten days— I know, I I hope, I I pray that soon this will also happen to me. During reading period before final exams, the library closes at midnight, so I sprint through the winter night to Wilson Hall for the graveyard shift. Wilson Hall is a beautiful 19th-century brick building. It's robin red, but it's been gutted and remodeled into four floors of generic classrooms, all of which have an incessant fluorescent buzz. Wilson Hall comes last on the campus cleaning schedule. That's why I go there. This is where I remain until the janitor kicks me out each dawn. Now, inspiration usually comes from me at 5 a.m. So I decide that rather than trying to wrestle my thoughts into any kind of order, I will simply wait. The fluorescents play their song. I kick the can, the tinkle of aluminum. Down the hall, the janitor is on the move. I hear the screech of chair legs. The janitor is coming for me. He's working his way to my room. He always leaves me for last. Until the day that he hoists me onto his vast garbage trolley and puts me out for pickup on the curb. It's 5 a.m. Nothing. To hell with Professor Globus. I know that I need to talk to somebody. And for several days, I hover outside the chaplain's office until I get myself to go in. But even then, I'm bouncing from chair to chair, and it takes a long time until the young rabbi comes out. I've met him before, because I go to the campus Hillel, and he asks me why I'm carrying so many bags. I do my best to explain. Hey, uh, you're at Brown, man, so that means you've always been intellectually precocious. Maybe now the rest of you is trying to catch up. I suggest that second semester, you should find a course that sounds more fun. Fun? Isn't thinking fun? What? What's fun? Well, fun is what you do when you're not working. Reading books is fun. Reading comic books is fun. Sex is fun, in theory. Touch football is fun. Fun, fun, huh. I look back at my academic career, really. I go grade by grade, searching and seeking for fun. And then, and then I zone in on my finest moment in 10th grade when Miss Gillian, my young and beautiful English teacher, she assigned me the topic of ancient Greek religious ritual, but she told me my project could take any form I choose. I made an 8mm silent movie. It was a parody in which I was dressed in a white bedsheet. I gave birth to a purple teddy bear, and I slaughtered a 6-inch ceramic bull. I read a deadpan narration for comic contrast, but I was terrified that Miss Gillian would think that I was making fun of her assignment, so I was astonished by the class's response. They laughed at every gag, 
and Miss Gillian guffawed, hee-hawing like a donkey. And then she called the principal in and asked for a second screening. And then she told me that I was unique. Nothing in the Brown catalog sounds like fun. But down the hill at the Rhode Island School of Design, they are offering a course in Super 8 filmmaking. I convince Anthony to be my cameraman, and together we make a film about sophomore slump. Lots of shots of me running away from books, running away from typewriters, running away from Brown. To where? To the ocean. We drive three hours to Anthony's favorite beach near his home in Rye, where he reconstructs his childhood sand fortresses and ziggurats. It's March. There's biting cold off the coast, and Anthony has the flu, but I'm convinced his sand masterpieces will make my film complete. In the close-ups, the fingers you see, red and chapped by the icy Atlantic, belong to Anthony. You can't see Anthony's flu evolving into pneumonia, but you can sense another friendship sacrificed to art. When I finish my movie, I screen it for my class at the Rhode Island School of Design, and I interpret the dead silence as uh, thoughtfulness. My teacher admits that my film is challenging to watch, but he says, it's a style. A style. I'll take it. The film has stirred my soul and liberated me from the catacombs of the Rockefeller Library, and there are only two things I am now certain of. I want to make movies, and I have to get out of Providence. So at the beginning of my junior year, in order to clear my head and make great art, I take another incomplete and move to New York City. I find a fourth-floor walk-up which faces a brick wall. There's an enormous metal grating that covers the windows to keep burglars out. My roommate puts a wooden sun on the windowsill because sunlight never reaches us. I go to NYU Film School, and I ask to enroll in a course in filmmaking, real filmmaking, 16-millimeter filmmaking. They have their doubts. I would be entering a four-year comprehensive program right in the middle. But hey, I'm in the middle of so many things. I'm persistent because I am unique, and I have a style. My teacher is Melek Marconian, the chairman of the film department. Melek is a fast-talking, no-bullshit New Yorker. At our first class, Melek tells us, A movie is a horse race. You check the horses, you put your money down, you wait to see who wins. A movie is not a placemat. If you like moving wallpaper, make videos. I am home at last. Each of you will draw a storyboard for your three-minute movie. You and your crew will plan your movie down to the millisecond. Your movie and your storyboard will be submitted on time because time is money. There will be no incompletes allowed in this course. I try to look like the kind of young man who plans everything down to the millisecond and always completes his work on time. Filmmaking requires uh, equipment, heavy, bulky, expensive gear. My new friend, Jackie Fine, a student at Columbia who I know from Young Judea, he agrees to act in my film, and I convince him that part of his job as a potential film star is to help me lug the equipment uptown from NYU on the 7th Avenue subway. We get a Bolex. That's the only camera they allow me to reserve. Now, a Bolex cannot record sound. That means there won't be any synchronized sound in my film. No dialogue whatsoever. And if I want any sound effects, I'm going to have to lay them in in the studio. 
We also take a tripod, a dolly, an air stand, a sand cart, a funnel, a light meter, and lights, all kinds of lights, along with a lavalier, a shotgun, and omnidirectional mics, and a Nagra 2, which can pick up a heartbeat. When passengers on the 7th Avenue line see me and my one-man crew encumbered with so very much highly specialized apparatus, they know that I'm going to be a filmmaker. You gotta tell a story and you gotta tell it fast. So the stakes in your movie better be life and death. No one's gonna give you a million dollars to show us a jerk with writer's block smoking cigarettes while life passes him by. You like that crap? Go to France. I don't like that crap and I've never been to France. But I don't have a story either. At night... My roommate and I stay up late and talk about our potential. He sighs a lot and occasionally weeps. Uh, He's depressed and he hates his job. And the heating in our apartment, well, that doesn't help. It hisses, it clangs. We can't turn it on and we can't turn it off. So by midnight, I'm always dried out. The top of my throat is glued to my esophagus. And I force open the windows and cool myself in the winter freeze. But then at 4 a.m., the heat goes off. And the Arctic air currents suck me out of bed. And trembling, I rush to slam the windows down. I don't understand how anybody falls asleep at night because I can't do it anymore. My film, well, of course, that is the place to portray the journey that I'm on, the seeking, the search for a calling, a profession, a community, an identity. These are the questions I obsess about, not just day and night, but while I'm talking, while I'm eating, while I'm sleeping. In fact, if I'm breathing, this is what I'm worrying about. How could the stakes be any higher? But I can't show myself pacing up and down in my apartment while my mucous membranes dry out. I don't want to create French wallpaper. Instead, I decide to portray my search allegorically. I shoot any place that has a white wall, which I use as my recurring backdrop. That way, the white wall will create visual continuity for the viewer. And while we're working on my three-minute masterpiece, I drag Jackie Fine all over New York City to my apartment, then we go to his apartment so I can use his five roommates as extras, and then out to Queens to my parents' house. Jackie's costume is simple. Jeans, sneakers, and a plaid lumberjack shirt, essentially what I wear. When my footage starts coming back from the lab, rather than sifting through the rushes or creating my storyboard, I decide I will continue shooting. I want to get everything in my head on celluloid, and I'll put it all together later. In our class, the first three-minute films are coming in. The standard Mellick critique is brief. This is crap! But occasionally he deigns to entertain us. You want to know why I don't care if the white car catches the black car? Because I can tell they're going 10 miles an hour. Oh yeah, that's going to make me shit in my pants. Your audience has already seen the French Connection, so that's what you've got to top. The rest of us laugh silently while our colleagues squirm in their seats, but we're smarmy. We're confident that we'll never be subjected to Melek's ridicule. All through the winter, I keep Jackie by my side. We're following my rhythms, working at night for as long as I can stay awake, which is all night, every night. Jackie learns to nap any place, any time, and I include a pillow and a blanket in our film kit. I fiddle obsessively with the lights. I run extension cords all over Jackie's apartment as if I'm wiring explosive booby traps. 
out in Queens, I get inspired by the pull-down wooden ladder that goes up to my parents' attic. So I set up lights for hours and hours, and I wake Jackie whenever the shot is ready, and I keep him climbing up and down, up and down, all night until dawn, for a week, until I get exactly the right shadows crossing his exhausted face. All the while, I'm apologizing to Jackie, obsessively, because if Jackie bails on me, I am done for. I still don't have a storyboard, and I keep shooting images as they come into my head for three months. I finally run out of ideas, which is a good thing, because Jackie has stopped talking to me. And when I splice my footage together, I have a 27-minute movie. (laughs) 